Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, Ad Nauseam listeners, to episode 106 of our little podcast, my name is Dr. David C. Noe, and I am here in the basement of the Vomitorium, Vomitorium South, with my good friend and fantastic co-host, Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. How I'm, are you, Jeff? I'm feeling good. I was wondering if you are going to get my middle initial in there. Of course. You introduce yourself with the yeah. C. Yeah, so I appreciate that. You're welcome. Yeah, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling, I got the, you got the, uh, the Christmas holidays coming up. It's coming up. Uh, end of the semester kind of craziness is mm-hmm. almost over. Right. So no, I'm, I'm feeling really excellent. Feeling good. How about yourself? Well, I want to just say the T stands for tremendous. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I Jeffrey Tremendous that. Winkle. Thank you. I right. appreciate that. What does the C stand for? Uh, we, we already know this, what right? We do? Curmudgeon. Curmudgeon. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Crotchety. <laughs> Something like that. <clears throat> but you're doing all right? I am doing well. Okay. I got a lot of resonance again. If you can hear that in my voice. I'm I can hear that, yeah. fighting a little bit of a cold. It's going uh, around. There's not a lot upstairs this afternoon, I'll have oh, no. to say. Oh, no. Okay. But uh, the voice is doing well. All right. All right. Good deal. Good deal. So what are we doing today? We're going to continue on and we're going to wrap up book seven of Virgil's Aeneid. Yep. We're going to get uh, all the parties arrayed on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Aeneas is going to bring out the Latin host and the Trojan host, and we're going to be introduced to one of the most fascinating characters in the epic. Who's that? One of my favorites. Uh, this is a, a young woman who played a chicken on The Muppet Show, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Who, who yeah, is this? Gonzo's pet chicken, don't you remember? I, I wasn't a big Muppets guy. Camilla. Camilla. Right. That was the name of the chicken on The Muppet Show? Yes. Oh, okay. But yeah, Camilla in the Aeneid is uh, is a force to be reckoned. She's with. incredible. Yes, incredible, yep. and we're going to meet her here at the end of this at the end of this book. Yes. Correct. Yep. So we I, we sadly do not have a shout out today. No, do we, we don't. No, okay. So just another gentle nudge to the audience. Right. Hey, hey, uh, give us a drop us a note. We've been getting some good correspondence, mm-hmm. some of which we still have to answer. Right. Cough, cough. Lots of um, really interesting ideas for future yes. future episodes. So that's keep those coming too. Fascinating suggestions. But as for shout outs. Uh, we're plumb out. We're plumb out. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So, shall we dive in? Let's do Just that. Drive, dive right in, okay? And, and what are we giving the people today? We're going to wrap up book seven. Yes. The listener listened to the previous episode. We talked at, at some length about um, Turnus's armor. Correct. And the imagery on the armor. And we're going to get to that scene today. Mm-hmm. And the opening quote that um, we have uh, lined up is another one kind of commenting on this. And so, this is something that I think we're going to lead off with and, and, and in more, in more or less kind of end with as well. Right. Yep. And the general theme for today's episode is the character of uh, the god Janus, right? Yes. And this is the two-faced god who presides over the temple, which is called uh, the Temple of War, the mm-hmm. Gates of War. Yes. And when his gates are opened and there's a special ritual, then the Romans march to war. That's right. And we get, we get more or less kind of the origin story of that. Exactly. Today. Yep. So you have the opening quote, and it's uh, from a guy named Stuart Smalley. Is that right? Yeah, Stuart Small. It struck me too. You remember Stuart Smalley? Yes, I do. Uh, it was played by uh, Senator Franken, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. He was good enough, smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me, That's right? correct. Yes. So this is from Tapa. Which is, uh, what, the Transactions of the American Philological Association? Right, which is no longer the American Philological Association. No, it's the uh, Society for Classical Studies. Correct. Right. This is a 1959 article. It's amazing, uh, volume 90. It's been around for a long time. 1959, they were on volume 90. If yeah. I'm not mistaken, this journal was founded by Basilino Gildersleeve. The, 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 the man himself. Yes, great American Latinist. Yeah. And so you're going to read the opening quote on uh, the arms of Turnus, right. correct? Yes. So, uh, Mr. Small writes, from another point of view, it must be admitted 
that the Io emblem gives the reader a much more favorable impression of Turnus's character than does the fire-breathing chimera. So in this article, um, just I chose this section. He goes on at length at the, at the beginning about the chimera. So there's two images on, on Turnus's armor, the chimera and Io. And if I may interrupt for just a second, yep. some of our listeners who are perhaps a little less polished than others, and I know that you're all brilliant, they may think that you're saying Camaro and not Chimera or Chimera. Oh, suggesting that Turnus had kind of a uh, like a late '80s sports car. And that's right, like a Trans Am <laughs> with the T tops. <laughs> actually, I can actually see Turnus driving that yes, around. Yes, I actually. can too, <laughs> right. like an early Night Rider sort of thing. Right. But no, you're saying Chimera. Chimera, right? Right, yeah. which is. Uh, a creature, a fantastic creature that is the combination of several other creatures. Yes, we have, there's a lion, there's mm-hmm. an eagle, um, a, a, sometimes a goat, right. and a snake. The hippogriff. Yeah, throw, right. Throw a horse in there, throw a bird in there. These are your chimeric creatures, like yes. uh, the minotaur, man and bull is another one. Yes, exactly. Okay. Right, so Small has, has already spent a few pages talking about how they, the chimera is emblematic of kind of the rage of Turnus right. and, and, and uh, kind of represents his prowess as a warrior on the battlefield. And now he's kind of shifted to looking at Io. So the, the, the chimera is bestial and monstrous from first to last, whereas Io is a human being who has been transformed into the shape of a heifer. Even after the alteration of her outward shape, she retains her human mind and soul. This is true of Turnus as well. For all of his violence and unreason, he is never dehumanized altogether. Likewise, both Io and Turnus are victims of divine interference. Io, we recall, was first animalized by Jupiter's lust, and then tormented by the jealousy and spite of Juno, who plagued her with the sleepless watchman Argus, and thereafter drove her mad by sending a tormenting gadfly in pursuit of her. Mm. So we talked about a bit about that yes. in the last episode. Yeah, we recapped the story for the listener as we were talking about Turnus's shield. Right. And maybe this might be um, repetitive from last time, but that striking detail is that we, we also notice that Io is also linked to the the, the mythic family Correct. Of, of the um, of the Latins, right? Or That's the Rutulians. Inachus. Right. Inachus, right. And so there is that familial connection that I think neither this author or I think it was M.R. Gale that we mm-hmm. last time um, noticed. But this this detail that I find striking is that, um, so if Juno, of course, is against Aeneas, and so that puts her on the side of the Rutulians in this case, right. Um, Io represents, again, something hateful to Juno. Yes. And so I think we can see something of kind of a foreshadowing of, of um, tragedy for, for Turnus in that. Definitely. Even the goddess that is on his side, uh, she's using him right. for a particular event, but then will discard him. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to be the plaything of the gods. No. Right? They're, they're not your friend for long. Right. So last time... Uh, we were talking about what kind of set up this conflict. I think it was Eulus Ascanius, the, the son of Aeneas, had gone out, gone hunting, mm-hmm. and he had wounded and killed this um, this stag that was precious to uh, some of the Latin shepherds. Yes, and it was Juno, actually, a detail we neglected to mention last time, but it was Juno who set Ascanius's hounds oh, yes. after the stag. Right. So there was that little, that little sort of nudge that makes the, the hounds of Ascanius as he's hunting chase this stag, and then war breaks out. Right, right. And so, and it starts out as kind of this little skirmish, you mm-hmm. know, a fight over the the uh, the, the sacred or, or special animal, mm-hmm. and then it um, the, the domino effect kicks in and Correct. it becomes much bigger. So the shepherds and then Turnus himself, uh, remember Turnus is, is now under also the influence of Amata, the, uh, it's not Amata, but Alecto, right. the fury, uh, but goaded on by Amata, her, his would-be uh, mother-in-law, and they want war. And so they go to Latinas and say, hey, uh, this is getting out of control. Right. We don't like these invaders. Declare war. Let's push them out. That's right. You can't stand for this. Look at the trouble they're causing. Right. Right. And so um, 
Latinus is he's kind of on the knife edge. I mean, he was the one who welcomed these Trojans, right? And, and kind of very quickly kind of promised his daughter to, mm-hmm. his, uh, to Aeneas. Based on the prophecy that his father Faunus had received. Exactly. About the, you know, the oracle of the, the, the man who would come in and establish the race as something great, mm-hmm. being Aeneas, of course. And, you know, but, that, but that is um, completely at odds is what's happening right now in front of him. Right. So he's made promises that he, uh, you know, he can't really walk back. Um, and so he throws up his hands and he decides, you know, I, I, I am not going to declare, I'm not going to open these gates. And so that falls to Juno to do it herself. Right. So Latinus goes back inside the palace, throws up his hands. He doesn't want to deal with it. Uh, Juno descends to open these gates. Um, and Dave, would you give us a little Latin here? Yeah, I'd love to do that. So this is beginning at line 601 in book seven, 601. And I'm using here uh, the critical edition, the text that's in the uh, Oxford classical texts. I know that you're familiar with this one and uh, it's edited by R.A.B. Minors. Why do I mention that? Why indeed? (laughs) (laughs) Because guys like Minors, M-Y-N-O-R-S, they did the hard work, Mm. you know, of establishing uh, what the actual text of Virgil was. And I think he's kind of an unsung hero. So I'm singing him a little bit here. Fantastic. All right. So beginning here at line 601. Mos erat esperien latioquem protinus urbes, alba nae caluera sacrum nunc maxima rerum, romacolit cum prima moent in proelia martem, si vegetis in fer dramenu lacrimabila bellum, hercanis warabis veparant sel tenderad indos, auroram quesequi partos que reposcora signa. Nicely done, as always. Thank you. Yeah. I want to draw attention to just one little bit here, Please. which is uh, line 604. Line 604 ends with these words, lacrimabile bellum. So a war that uh, you have to cry over. Mm. It's worthy of tears, lacrimabile. Right? Yeah. So the, the Latin lacrima, meaning a tear, and then um, with the adjectival form here, something you want to weep over. Right, right, right. Yeah. Weep, weep worthy. I don't know if that's an English word, yeah. but weep worthy war. I think that I mean that's um, I think that phrase speaks to um, some of these tendencies in Virgil that we've seen, right? He's, yes. he's, he's this is a, a book, um, this is an epic that doesn't glorify war for no. war's sake, right? And I think that's I think that's often kind of a cliche and a trope that's that's applied to the Romans. You know? Absolutely, the Greeks were the, Greeks. The, 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 the well, yeah, but also I think kind of there's also this the Greeks were the thinkers, the philosophers, and the Romans were the bloodthirsty, right, um, the killers and road builders. Yes, right? they were just brutes like a machine rolling across the landscape. Right, and so I think the the Aeneid time and time again is an antidote antidote to that. Right? Absolutely, right. Yeah, this is one of the things that first drew me to Virgil so much, and and the Romans generally is that when you have to do something. Uh, nasty, like war, you should do it well, but never lose sight of the fact that it's inherently uh, despicable and mm. unpleasant. Right. And there's so much pathos in that. I find that such a great reflection of life generally. Virgil does not glorify war, but if if Aeneas is called to engage in war, well, he's going to do it very well. Uh, this is a theme we've talked about before in the podcast. Right. He's going to do it very well, even though he hates doing it. Yeah. Because it's a nasty business. Yeah, isn't that isn't that a core um, you know, tenet of, of pietas? Yes, uh, it's it's your, that Roman duty. Right, you you have to do the thing. You have to do the things that you don't necessarily correct. You know, want to do. And to digress for a moment, mm-hmm. uh, when the Gladiator movie came out, yeah. I guess almost twenty five years ago so now. It came out in two thousand. Yeah, yeah, so it's a long, long time. time ago. Yeah, people would ask me at the time, since I was a grad student, you know, is that true to uh, Roman history? What do you think of that movie? Mm-hmm. The general take would be. It was loose with a lot of facts, but I do think it captured the spirit of the Romans quite well. Yeah. Because the main character 
does not enjoy being the best gladiator. Yeah. He hates it, right? You know, the famous, are you not entertained? Right, right, right. He hates doing it, but that's no reason not to do it well. Right, right. And that's quintessentially Roman, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Well, well said. Yeah. Um, I think that's, we got to treat that in an episode, right? That Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. As one of our recent shout outs, he actually suge- suggested that. Yes, he did. So we'll, yes, he did. We'll get on that. All right. All right. Let me give you some of Lombardo's translation. Love to hear um, it. It's a bit long, but I think it's, uh, it sets up um, a lot of what we want to talk about uh, in terms of the gates of war and, right. and this god, uh, Janus. Um, I will. I, I would say, as, as you were as you were reading the Latin and I'm looking over the translation, I think this is one of these places where, despite the Homeric model, uh, Virgil wants to make it very clear that there are many things that are kind of quintessentially Italian, mm. quintessentially Roman. I think this is one of them, right? Um, the, the gates of war and then also even the god Janus. Yeah, so if I can just add to that, yeah. I know we're delaying the reading the quote, <laughs> uh, but there's an old parlor game in which you try to match a line of Virgil uh, to a specific line of Homer. Ah. And many, many of Virgil's lines of poetry are almost quotations or translations of individual lines of Homer. Hmm. Obviously, with the exception of this kind of content, as you so ably pointed out. Yeah. So it's an imitation of Homer, but there are parts where Virgil wants us to know, this is my project. Without a doubt. This is uh, uniquely Italian, you might say. Yeah, he's, uh, he's his own man. Right. right. Yep. All right. Um, Lombardo then. There was a custom in ancient Latium, held sacred by the, the Alban cities and now by Rome most high, whenever Mars is first roused, be it the Getae or Arabs or Hyrcanians, Hyrcanians, against whom they prepare to bring the tears of war. There's that phrase. Lacrima, what is it? Lacrimabula bellum. Yes. Or to march on India, pursue the dawn, and reclaim their eagles from the Parthians. There are twin gates of war, so men call them sanctified by faith and fear of Mars, held shut by a hundred bronze bolts and the eternal strength of iron. Janus, their guardian, never leaves the threshold. Here, when the fathers declare war, the consul wearing quirinal robes and a toga with a gabine uh, cincture unbars the grating doors and calls forth war. The rest of the army then takes up the cry and brass horns blare in hoarse accord. Latinus was charged to declare war on Aeneas in just this way and open the grim gates, but the old man would not touch them recoiling from such service and hid himself in the shadows. It was the queen of the gods gliding down from the sky who with her own hand pushed the hesitant doors on their turning hinges and burst open the iron-bound gates of war. Hmm. Well done, and what a brilliant, brilliant translation. Isn't that nice? Yes. I, I'm looking at this, um, in this, and maybe if you have the Latin in front of you, I'm just kind of curious what the, what the word is. Sure. Um, when at the very end when it says that Juno glides down, and with her own hand pushed the hesitant doors. I'm wondering, right. is it that same word? Is it the cunctantum that we they had on the bow from book six? It's morantis. Morantis, okay. Morantis. It's the, uh, the verb moror, right? It's a deponent verb to delay. Delay, yeah. Yeah, and here as a participle, morantis. Right. Okay, I was hoping for a direct. You were hoping that I was it would be like, like the, the right. bow, the cunctantum. Yeah, but I would say that, I mean, that using that, that verb... Um, see if you agree with me that against Virgil saying that y- you you want to keep these doors closed. Absolutely, right? you don't throw them open. It's right, like war is not something to be sought, and right. so the doors themselves kind of they 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 delay. Yes, yeah. I think that uh, in you know ideological terms, you might say it's easy to want to make someone like Virgil after our own image. Yeah, either he's a you know a Western warmonger, people might say, celebrating the you know the advance of western civilization under the romans crushing indigenous peoples right that's altogether too simplistic yes but to call him a pacifist is also kind of absurd right there is something in between that is someone who hates war but thinks that 
reluctantly, it has to be done sometimes. Yes. And I think the morantis there, that adjective you, you put your finger on, shows well Virgil's mind. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, no, that, that's, that's very well said. That whole kind of issue of, of, you know, wanting to read the ancients, you know, through the prism uh, you know, of our own uh, worldview. As right. Well. In some ways, it's unavoidable. Of course. But it's, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a trap that I think a lot of people fall into. Sure. I was in a, uh, with a group of people a couple of weeks ago. And the discussion, you want to read their names in the air? I do not. <laughs> um, and I, the discussion turned around to um, the New Testament, the letters of Paul, and, right. and kind of theology. And there's one kind of more cranky guy in the group, okay, who who kind of just berated, kind of he says he wanted nothing to do with Paul. And, and well, well, why is that? Well, because because of his just uh, his um, uh, aggressive sexism. Yeah. Right. And so I, I used my usual line. I said, well, you're, are you upset that he also never recycled? Right. right? <laughs> uh, Touche. Right. That's a good one. And so, and we had actually a productive conversation about a- that. After that yes. uh, retort of yours? Right. And I mean, he, he admitted kind of it just, it was kind of a gut reaction. But yeah. we talked about kind of the issue of presentism, right? Right. You, you know, yeah. if, if the, if the, if you, these, the people from the past aren't perfect in your eyes, the way you right. think that they should be, then therefore... They are lesser. Yeah, and they have nothing to contribute to the conversation. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Well said. Yep. So I, I found another. I found another article um, from uh, Michael Putnam, uh, also from Tapa, where he writes about um, Book uh, Seven of the Aeneid. But he uh, addresses this notion of of the gates of war and kind of connects it to uh, kind of the Virgil's Roman present. So Tapa is really, really just representing today, yeah, isn't it? Maybe we could get a. I don't. They, 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 I don't they think so. Sponsor a I'm thing? Kidding. No way. They wouldn't right. uh, touch, uh, touch <laughs> us with a ten foot hosta, right? right. Um, so why don't I read this this excerpt okay. from this article, which is called um, Aeneid Seven and the Aeneid. Not, I don't give Putnam points for clever titles. There. No. It's pretty, uh, pretty dull. But he writes, It was one of Augustus's proudest boasts, it was incorporated into his res gestae, that the Temple of Janus was closed three times during his regime, whereas in all Roman history up to his, his time had happened but twice before. In the same work, he also gives his thoughts on war and, and peace from the res gestae. And he, he quotes a bit of the Latin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, oh, let's just read the Latin here. Bella terra et mari, mari quivilia externaque toto in, toto in orba terrarum, suscepi victorque omnibus superstitibus kiwibus perpeci, externas gentis quibis tuto ignosci potuit, consuara quam excidere malui. Very nice. And he keys and he says, the crucial uh, adjective tuto, which right. is interesting, in safety, in the second sentence, may be defended as a sop to necessary expediency. Now, you're going to have to unpack that a little bit. You've got some archaic words there, and uh, I know, once again, brilliant audience, but I don't want to leave anyone behind. What, what does he mean, uh, defended as a sop to necessary expediency? Um, I think he's saying that, uh, I think he's talking about that Augustus's words, he's justifying war okay. um, because of uh, because of the benefits that it brings. Okay. Like, and so he brought the whole war, the, the world into safety, mm-hmm. uh, made the world safe. So, um, and he, a, a sop, of course, right, is like a, a bowl of oatmeal. A bowl of oatmeal? That's, a, that's what you think of when you think of sop? A sop is a kind of a soft food that you offer to someone right. in order to appease them. Yeah, just kind of, you, you kind of toss it in their direction. Here, that's chew on correct. this. Like, I, I think of like a, here's a box of Twinkies. Okay. You shove them in your mouth and shut up. Right. right. Um, you talking to me? Uh, you talking to, you know, I'm, I just showed Taxi Driver in my film class. <laughs> you, 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 I don't know what you're talking about. Come on, you know what? You, no, I don't. No, never no. mind. All right. Sop to necessary expediency. Right. 
This is the first statement is more open to doubt. We are dealing with times which Tacitus called a pacem cruentum. So you just talked right. about the the tearful war. That's correct. Um, Tacitus calls the pacem cruentum a bloody peace. That's right. This is from his Annales, uh, Annales Book One. Yes. In the same paragraph, Tacitus, while talking of Augustus, raises a moral issue which has some bearing on the end of the Aeneid. Okay, finally, Putnam gets around to connecting right. to our text. It is morally correct, the historian says, Tacitus, to give up private hatreds in favor of public needs. Privata odia publicis utilitatibus remitera. In Tacitus's eyes, Augustus was in this respect constantly delinquent. What of Virgil's Aeneas? Is his killing of Turnus an example of private hatred? Or of public need. Right. Now, of course, this takes us all the way to the yeah, end so of the idea. This anticipates the end of book 12, yes. in, in which, spoiler alert, yeah. Aeneas kills Turnus in what could be described as an act of impulsive bloodlust. Yes. Right. So I think that, that issue of, of uh, or Tacitus's notion that uh, what, let's see, it's, uh, it is moral that you give up private hatreds uh, in favor of public needs. That's right. And so that you can never let your own kind of you know, private um, access to grind uh, it govern how you how, how you govern. Yes, yeah, yeah. This is what distinguishes good from bad leadership. Mm-hmm. And I can cite an example from American history. Yes, I don't know how true it is, but it is the conventional wisdom that uh, Abraham Lincoln, when he was elected to office, uh, made up his cabinet right from political rivals. Yes, and he said the only or the best way, words to this effect, the best way to defeat an opponent is to make them a friend. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. he was apparently very good at. Uh, Bridging gaps. Yes. I mean, not with Southerners, but you know what I'm saying. Yes. I, I read that. Uh, I think the book is called A Team of Rivals. I that think that's a, right. A biography of Lincoln was excellent. Mm. And um, the, uh, just to kind of extend that, that's I think that's a, a great comparison. Um, the guy that was at Lincoln's bedside when he died, mm-hmm. I think his secretary of war. Was it Charles Sumner? And it was Edwin somebody. Okay. I'm forgetting his last name, but he was someone who was not a fan of Lincoln at right. all. And he's the one who's credited with, with saying the line when... Um, Lincoln's heart stopped saying now he belongs to the ages. Mm. And so that his kind of bitter rival was right. sitting at his deathbed. Um, it's, I think it's a, a, a really a striking um, culmination of, of that philosophy. Yeah, it, of I mean, the Tacitian notion that private hatreds have to yield to the public good. Right. Yeah. I think that's something that's uh, lar- very much missing from contemporary politics mm-hmm. uh, writ large. Um, and so he, and, but Tacitus also, if you know anything about Tacitus, he didn't like anybody. No. Right? <laughs> he didn't have a book. Call it senatorial historiography. <laughs> yeah. And right. we should do an episode on Tacitus sometime. We should. And so Augustus, I mean, so he was kind of a counter to kind of the myth of Augustus. Correct. Right? And so he was, uh, he, uh, he grumbled about Augustus. And mm-hmm. no, he did not, he did not um, live up to that particular ideal. Right. And mm-hmm. the point for Virgil is that uh, in his race gestae, Augustus gives an account of his reign and how it is that he came to power. And um, Tacitus is saying Augustus is being a little bit dishonest, a little bit immoral, because he never evidenced this very important trait of leadership. Mm. Private hatred has to submit to public good. Yeah. So then uh, Putnam's question is, does Aeneas do this in the Aeneid? Does Mm. he put private Mm -hmm. hatred above public good? Right. With a particular eye to the very last scene of, of correct, the and I think that's um, again we'll cover this you know probably you know, what forty six episodes from now correct, right? um, but I think it's one of those questions that hangs over the end of the Aeneid um, that you know people have asked did Virgil really intend to end it there right, and I think one of the reasons people ask that question because this seems to be so incongruous right. with that kind of that Tacitian ideal and generally yeah. dissatisfying as the end of an epic right right right, so now because Latinus would not open the gates of war on this temple of Janus himself, mm-hmm. Juno comes down and nudges them open 
War is unleashed. But what about the temple itself, Jeff? Where is this temple located? The real deal, the real temple, yes. Um, right down in the Roman Forum. And if I recall correctly, I don't think there's much left of this this temple right. there. And so it, it marked the, kind of the boundary of the Roman Forum. And you know, during kind of Augustus's day, it was uh, the transition point between the Roman Forum and the Forum of his adopted um, uh, granduncle, um, uh, Julius, Julius Caesar. Right. right. And... Um, it was the it was the doors to the temple of of Janus, and these were the doors that were almost in Roman history almost always open. Which means that the Romans are at war. Are at war, right? And so the fact that Augustus um, was was credited with closing them three times was mm-hmm. a, was a huge deal. Right. right. Isn't there a clock in Times Square in New York City that has a uh, the um, amount of the national debt? Yes. It's always running. <laughs> it's always running. <laughs> I don't I don't know if I've ever seen that. I think I've been to New York City. Maybe twice, mm. uh, Dave versus New York City. Yeah, got out of there quickly. But I think there's a clock right there, and it's just constantly spinning, right? And the, a, the debt clock. That's right. On a hot summer day, if you walk by the the speed of the digits, you can cool yourself off. <laughs> this has to be something like um, the gates of war being opened. Mm. Right? It's a very public, obvious, conspicuous example of something that affects everybody. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I was trying to think of, of different kind of corollaries. Mm-hmm. I think um, like a symbol, like a, a flag at half staff. Yes, I was right? thinking of that too. Yeah. Uh, just kind of a visual reminder of the, um, yeah, the, the the debt, you know, the the overwhelming amount of the debt and, and a, right. a flag at, at half staff, um, the costs of war. Right. right. It's supposed to be symbolic or mm-hmm. every day, you know, the changing of the guard, the tomb of the unknown soldier. Yeah. Um, I think that people don't think about those kinds of things very much, and certainly we don't witness them firsthand yeah. uh, because they are very geographically specific, right? just like the temple of uh, Janus was. Mm-hmm. But if you're living out in the Italian hinterlands, um, you probably have some connection, right? It's the seven degrees of Gaius Julius or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah. know someone who knows someone who walked past the temple today yeah. and the gates are still open. Right. So somewhere, someplace, Roman soldiers are dying. Yes, exactly, exactly. And then, so by contrast, the, the closing of the gates right. would be even more monumental because it's so rare. Correct. How yeah. many times did it happn during Augustus's reign? Three times. Okay. It, it said, and I think um, the, the passage that we just read that before Augustus, it had only been closed two different times in all of Roman history. All of Roman history. Mm. Right? And so the the quasi legend is that um, the temple, the gates were were built. By uh, Numa Pompilius, right. right? So this would be in terms of the Aeneid, long after that. Yes, uh, long about seven twenty. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. And so Latinus has these gates, but the gates that you know, archaeologically, historically speaking, were said to have been created by Numa Pompilius, the second king of Rome, and he's famous for uh, kind of civilizing. Uh, kind of barbaric Rome. Oh, yeah. We talked about him once when we were talking about Pythagoras and uh, vegetarianism, right, from uh, Ovid. Oh, yeah. Uh, because Numa was a contemporary, according to Ovid, of Pythagoras. So he civilizes Rome, gives them uh, laws and religion, mm-hmm. and succeeds in what? In building this temple yes. uh, to the god uh, Mars. To, to the god Mars, right, with the intention that, the, I think the the clear subtext is that Oh, you Romans, the goal should be to keep these gates shut. Correct. Yeah. There's a public monument with an educational purpose. Right. So it reminds me of, um, in my myth class today, I was just talking about uh, key crops for the Athenians. Yes. Kind of of quasi-semi-legendary king. Yes, he is the the snake from the waist down. Right. Right. The snake part is particularly legendary. Right. right? Okay. (laughs) You're not convinced? He said to... um, 
he said to have brought in uh, the notions of marriage and monogamy and and um, turn away from a human sacrifice, worship the Olympian gods. And so hmm. It's almost it's an archetype, you know, the early king who kind of brings right. um, order out of chaos. Right. And Numa uh, falls into that mm-hmm. uh, uh, for the Romans. And right. we have some record of Numa's life, don't we, from Plutarch? Yeah, he wrote uh, yeah a life of of Numa. Um, and uh, yeah, let me read a, a passage from this, which talks about this this very thing we are discussing. Janus also has a temple at Rome with double doors, which they call the gates of war, for it always stands open in time of war, but is closed when peace has come. The latter was a difficult matter, and it rarely happened, since the realm was always engaged in some war, as its increasing size brought it into collision with the barbarous nations which encompassed it round about. But in the time of Augustus, it was closed, after he had thrown overthrown Mark Antony, and before that, when Marcus Attilius and Titus Manilius were consuls, it was closed for a short time, and then war broke out again at once, and it was opened. Hmm. So, um, and the tradition for yeah. the declaration of war, right? You're familiar with this tradition. The gates of Janus are opened, and then the consul takes a spear and hurls it into the temple at the statue of Janus. Mm. Man, with the intention of like, like uh, of piercing it? No, it's just right. an act of aggression. Okay, it's just showing the Romans are are headed to war. It's a highly symbolic gesture. Yeah. I would hope that council would have you pick the one of the two councils that have the better aim. Yeah, you'd think so. You don't want some kind of embarrassing uh, faux pas of no, throwing you don't. it over the temple. <laughs> <laughs> and now uh, axe throwing has become really popular. I've seen that around town. There's places mm-hmm. that it's a you know a great date night. You and you and your bride could go out axe throwing. That's right. Yeah. I guess it's replaced bowling. <laughs> I guess I would find it more interesting than bowling. I would too. Mm. I find most things actually more, right. Yeah, Sleeping right. So even Nero himself. Uh, made a show of closing the gates of war once. And, uh, um, you know, times of peace is not what people usually associate with the Emperor Nero. No, but his quinquennium, as we know, the first five years... Were good. Were very good on the whole. Yep. And so there's a um, uh, a famous uh, striking of coinage where mm-hmm. he uh, depicts the, the Temple of Janus with the doors closed. He Nero. He Nero, yes, right. exactly. So on one side is uh, his image. Mm-hmm. On the other side, the Temple of Janus. Gates closed, meaning I have brought peace. I have brought peace. The Pax Neroniana. Right. So can we talk a little bit about Janus? Yes, let's do this, because this is a topic near and dear to your heart, because it brings out the L word. The L word, yes. He's our our liminal figure. That's correct. Liminality. Can you define that a little bit for those who haven't been listening to every episode in which it's mentioned? (laughs) (laughs) So liminality refers to uh, kind of unbounded in-betweenness. And you find this in cultures around the world. It's not just the Greeks, not just the Romans. You find it everywhere, kind of an anxiety about boundaries. And so, you know, we were talking about the chimera, that, you know, that, that creature. I think every time you have a creature that's made up of different, um, different pieces, um, you know, so a chimera is a lion, it's a goat, it's a snake, it's, it's whatever, it's an eagle, it's all those, but it's none of them. Correct. And so one of the things that makes those, those things unsettling and, and scary is that they are unbounded. You can't, you can't um, tie it down somewhere in your mind. Right. Put it into a nice, neat box. Right. It's why puppets can be very creepy. Yes. Right? Or ventriloquist dummies. Right. right? Are they human? Or are they not human? They kind of they live in that kind of that Freudian uncanny. Or when you come to your home in the evening, right, and it's not quite night, it's not quite day, and the door is locked, and you're fumbling for your keys, right? That's, yes. That's a liminal moment. Deeply liminal. Right, because yes. you want the safety and comforts of your home. You're not real comfortable necessarily being outside. 
it's it's great uncertainty. It is. I often I find that kind of that prickly feeling on the back of my neck. Sometimes even when I go down at night to turn off the basement lights mm. and I'm walking up the steps. You're a real scaredy cat, aren't I, you? I, I, well, I'm. I think I'm. I'm tuned into that. I've seen too many horror movies. Is I my think problem. so. Right. Yeah. So I wouldn't say I'm a scaredy. That's cat. what I would call you. <laughs> Feles timida. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. I prefer Johnny Pop. All right. Right. So um, the uh, just as a, a physical location. The Temple of Janus, you know, between two forums, you know, marks the boundary. So it's a liminal space. You know, it's, right. a, it's a threshold that to get from one side to the other, you need to cross or go past. And so if you want that, the symbolism of the doors being closed, the boundary is fixed. Mm-hmm. This is good. It's in control. Right. Um, but when the doors are open, then um, then kind of there's that, it's the, it's the gray area. It's mm-hmm. liminal. It's scary. It's, um, it's unpredictable. Mm-hmm. That's associated with war, right? So I think that... I think that's an important distinction. So, you know, why are the doors shut for peace? Why are the doors open for war? Hmm. You know, couldn't it be just the opposite? Well, from a, a, a point of view of liminality, understanding kind of that symbolism, the closed door would be the one that you want because that see. fixes the boundary. Right. And the open door would mean things are uncertain. Things are uncertain. Could be coming or going. Right. So the god Janus, who is usually depicted as being two-headed, yes. looking both ways. Sometimes there are examples where there's um, four heads and you know, each head is kind of looking down one of the cardinal points. Okay. Um, that shows, it's it's similar to, we, we've talked on the show about like the Herms. Mm-hmm. You place the, her, the the statue of Hermes at the crossroads or at the, the, at the threshold. Right. Um, Janus is the two-headedness. He, uh, so he can look down both ways. Correct. He's got the boundary covered. And so he's exactly the kind of God you want at that threshold because he can watch over it mm-hmm. kind of unblinkingly mm-hmm. and, uh, and control it. Right. Yeah. Now, unlike many of the Roman gods, there was no Greek counterpart to Janus. No. Um, and uh, Janus, as a deity, doesn't have a lot of kind of narrative myth attached uh, mm-hmm. to him. He's, he's more just kind of functional for, for providing protection and overseeing of those kinds of spaces. So he's... You know, he's he's defined as a god of beginnings, right. of gates, obviously here, mm-hmm. transitions, time, duality, doorways, passages, frames, uh, beginnings, and endings. Mm-hmm. So he, I mean, a lot of those have to do with, with kind of going from space to space, uh, crossing thresholds, right? Uh, both of uh, uh, space and time, right? Yeah, right, people, right? People like to mark the beginnings of things. Mm-hmm. I was involved in a conversation recently, uh, not quite as inflammatory as the one that you recounted about Paul and his <laughs> uh, doctrines and positions. Yeah. But this was about the acceptability of graduation events uh, for the very young, mm. right? Can we have a, like a fifth grade graduation? Well, what about a kindergarten graduation? What about a preschool graduation? Right. These were not things that existed when you and I were preschoolers. No. But uh, th- this individual, this young woman was holding forth on just how bad these are mm. because they hadn't accomplished anything. So why are they getting a graduatory moment? Right, right. And uh, the other individual was saying, well, because when you dress kids up in uh, tiny little robes, it's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the common thread there, mm-hmm. so to speak, the common thread in the robe is the liminality. Yes. You want to mark something there. Now you got me talking liminality. Yeah, 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 yeah. You want to mark that the child has gone from preschool to school school. Right. So you have to have a ceremony. Exactly, right. And Janice is the kind of individual who would love to preside over that ceremony. Exactly. I, I fundamentally disagree with what you said. It was a young woman who was saying how silly this was. Yeah. Right. You like uh, it? I, I like it a lot. You do. Um, and as someone who's sat through... Uh, three ki- kindergarten graduations right. of my own children. And I admit kind of sitting there and kind of, you know, not quite rolling my eyes. Mm-hmm. But I recognize, I think that, I think rites of passage are important. Uh, they are right? important. And I think, I think that, um, and particularly I think that as, as Western society continues to secularize, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we, um, 
we're, I think we're losing a lot of those kind of fundamental rites of passage that would be part of a re- religious tradition, be that kind of confession of faith, a confirmation. You're right. Right? Um, but bar mitzvah. You, bar, bar mitzvah. I mean, but I think you, you see it even like in uh, like the Mexican tradition of a quinceanera. Right? right. You're 15-year-old. It's kind of a, now you're a transition to womanhood. I think those things are very important. Fair. Yeah. I think I've put my finger on what the problem with it is. Okay. It's not the rite of passage. It's that it is treated as a singular accomplishment. Oh, I see. If there's some way that they could take, and I didn't necessarily agree with this young woman. I'm indifferent to the the notion. Mm -hmm. But if you could somehow take out of it the concept that this is a singular accomplishment and focus on the fact that it is a rite of passage so that mere survival and perseverance in something is a good. Yeah. You're not saying that this child has done something fantastic by moving inevitably from one stage of life to the next, right. it's not a participation trophy. It's a it's a simple rite of passage. I think people could get behind it a lot. Yeah, a lot easier. Yeah, no, I think that's that's an important distinction. It makes me think of um, you know amongst um, you know upper class Roman young men, they they were you know, given usually age that's around right. fifteen. They gave the toga uh, virilis, right? They got that's the man's correct. toga. And the one that has the purple stripe right. on it. And now it was, you're entitled to the purple stripe. Right. And and one of the rituals there was they had the the bulla, the, the, the pouch that was around their neck. Correct. Which was filled with all kinds of apotropaic um, uh, oh. kind of warding off symbols. Right. Um, cut off. Hmm. And uh, I think that we were talking this. Uh, so now you're on your own is kind of the, yes. I wasn't aware of that tradition. So they would wear around their necks a pouch, a, a pouch. bulla. Yes. And uh, it had apotropaic symbols in it. It did. Amulets. Right. Because I think what the what the Romans recognized, I think as every culture that's ever existed recognized, is um, the time of adolescence, although it's defined differently by cultures, is, it, comes. is a time of liminality. Right. Right. And so that time where um, in the immortal world's, uh, words of Britney Spears, um, I am... Uh, I am, I am not a girl, but I'm not yet a woman, hmm. right? And so that, that time of... Oh, that's disturbing that, to hear you say I, that. I'm sorry. So <laughs> we, well, we're going to edit that out. No, we won't. Um, but uh, we were talking about this months ago with Gary Schmidt. Yes. And we were talking... I was asking him, you know, well, why... You know, Years ago now, actually. Yeah. We, I, was at, I think I asked him, you're, you know, almost all of your novels deal with kind of kids in that middle school age, right? right? And it's, it's that... I don't think he used those terms, but it's the that, the liminality that yes. kind of that that gray area of kind of who you are and trying to figure out who you are is is um, is very interesting. Correct, right? And so I think we need rites of passage uh, to kind of delineate these things. I think it's important for the health of a culture mm-hmm. to do those. So we're going to bring it right back around to uh, Janice in just a moment. Yes, but I would like to say that the the rituals that have filled the gap of the um, departing religious rituals. Yeah. They're so phony, honestly. Yeah. The things that are made up as rites of passage, I, I find, I can't think of any specific examples, mm-hmm. but you will hear from time to time of persons trying to come up with um, rites of passage because they know they notice something's missing. Right. But it takes a long time for these things to settle into the, into the human mind. Yeah. And anything new is just going to come off as... Forced. I would agree with that. I think I think if there's a rites of passage, like I mean, a more secular rite of passage, right, would have to be organic. Correct. Right. And so with this this kind of um, uh, I, guess, I know we're we're deeply digressing here, but I think it's your fault. This is this relates. And so um, some of the work that I've been doing on, on urban legends, mm-hmm. and one of the particular things I'm fascinated about is this this thing that you know folklore is called legend tripping. Right. You not only retell the story, you kind of go and engage in the story. You know, you like go a pilgrimage. Yeah, you go to the cemetery at midnight. And and you you know you you run around the tombstone three times you know at a glance it seems very silly and very adolescent but um, my argument would be is that you know who's doing these kinds of things 
it's adolescents. It's kids who are kind of trying to prove their adult. It's usually guys right. trying to pr- prove their mettle, prove their courage. Right. And they're kind of and they're not thinking of it in these lines. But what they're doing is they're creating rites of passage. They're 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 finding they're making a little hero's journey. They're facing right. death in this safe kind of way, scaring themselves and going there and coming back. Mm. That's a rite of passage. Right. And it's one that's very organic. Absolutely. Yeah. And speaking of rites of passage, yes, it's time for the ads. Let's do it. This episode of Ad Nauseum is brought to you by Racial Coffee. Jeff, what do you know about Racial Coffee? I know a lot about Racial Coffee. Well, give coffee. me just one factoid. Throw it on me. Um, I know that I love my Ratio 8. Okay. Um, it produces a great cup of coffee every single morning. Would you call this a brewmance? It, 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 I do have a, brew, a brewmance with my, with my machine. Yes. Yeah. How about you? Uh, well, in the immortal words of Cinderella, yes? don't know what you got till it's gone. Oh, no. What happened? Well, uh, don't worry. The ratio eight is still there, safely nestled on my countertop. Thank goodness. But last night we had some friends over, mm-hmm. and uh, I was not in charge of the coffee brewing. Oh, no. And uh, when I'm not in charge of the coffee brewing, some members of the family um, have better ideas. They honestly do, frankly. And we had a, a lot to brew, so they used that older machine. Oh, no. Uh, it was my fault. I didn't really explain how you could use the eight in this, you know, in this particular setting and context. Yes. Uh, and... The coffee was, let's just say, okay. Did it ruin the evening? No, it didn't. The, okay. evening, the evening just sped along beautifully. Yes. And we may do, but I just couldn't help but think um, how much better the coffee would have been yes. had it been brewed in the ratio eight. I see. Yeah. I noticed that too. Whenever I get coffee from, you know, with this- Elsewhere. Elsewhere or from like a large gathering and they mm-hmm. have kind of the, you know, the, the giant tank. Yes. Oh, the tank coffee. With a little spigot at yes. the bottom. Oh, it's, it's always bad. You know, typically the things that go to the bottom of anything are not what you want to consume. No. No, it's it's very very true. Right, right. So, listeners, I mean, the, if you want, if you have, to, I'm sure you've had this problem. I'm sure they have. If you want to avoid it? Um, go to ratiocoffee.com. They've got these two wonderful machines, the six and the eight. They're beautiful. Um, they make the perfect cup of coffee every single time. Fibonacci head. Fibonacci head. The the hand blown borosilicate carafe. The metallic veins. Yes. Th- through which the water courses at 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Down through the cone into the carafe. Never touched by a scorch pad. Never, never, never. And you got the bloom with the brew, right? Right. And uh, then the ready stage with a little LED light. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's it's uh, beautiful in its simplicity. Yeah, and entirely functional. And from it, we'll be missing that malodorous, nostril clogging, uh, intensely displeasant, um, brackish tang. There you go. That's it. So go to RacialCoffee.com, pick one of these machines, or pick them both if you want to, and uh, type in the coupon code A-N-C-O-K-5. Right. And the K stands for kitchen. Yes. Because it's going to make your kitchen fantastic. That's right. So punch that in, and that'll get you 15% off your entire order. A-N-C-O-K-5. You will be getting great coffee and supporting this podcast. This episode of Ad Nauseam is also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. For 50 years now, these guys have been doing it, um, uh, producing, uh, supplying great translations, wonderful translations. If you've been, if you have been enjoying the Lombardo translation from these uh, the Aeneid episodes, that's done by Hackett. Yes, you will have heard how Stanley Lombardo can take Virgil's gorgeous poetry and turn it into riveting, colorful incredible uh, rendition in English of this fantastic poem. Right. And if you were to go, if you want that text, and if you were to go to hackupublishing.com and look it up, you're not going to find some 
leather-bound, you know, a tome that's good, that's selling for you know one hundred and seventy-five dollars, like you might find in in uh, in lots of racks with textbooks. It's good, you're going to find a very affordable volume. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I love about Hackett is that they they work really hard to create a quality product, but within reach of almost any budget. That's correct. They have a wide catalog of not just classics, but things from Central American and South American studies. They have uh, Near Eastern and uh, Asian studies, books on the samurais. Uh, They have a new Aristotle series. They've got Plato. They have uh, the landmark series of the Greek historians. Phenomenal catalog of wonderful material. Right. And even multiple translators of the same work. So you Mm -hmm. can kind of, even within one particular text, you can kind of see what you like, Mm -hmm. see, see what hits. And so, uh, listeners, if you want to help this podcast and you want to get some of these great texts um, and uh, get a great deal, go to hackettpublishing.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-T-T publishing.com. Find the books that you want, drop them in the little satchel, and type in the coupon code AN2022. Where did that number come from? That's the year that oh, we're in right, right now. Oh, right, right. And so um, put that in, and that will get you two uh, tremendous things, 20% off your entire order, and Dave? Free shipping. There it is. Check it out. All right, Jeff, as we get back into it now, mm-hmm. we're talking Janus and yeah. the Temple of War. The Temple of War. So I think we were, uh, we were talking about how uh, Janus is a kind of quintessentially Roman god. There's right. not a lot of you know narrative about him in myth. He doesn't have lots of stories um, behind him. Uh, one of the traditions is that he's the father of uh, the goddess Kaida, mm-hmm. and the goddess the goddess of hinging, uh, right. hinges, right? So again, also having to do with doors. You may think that, you know, the whole family of Janus... She could, was a bit of a swinger, right? <laughs> exactly right. Think of the whole family of Janus could be like a whole Home Depot, right? <laughs> they, they had the son of the, of, of the knobs. Right. Right. And uh, locks and... You looking and, for some comic potential in there? I think there's something there. I haven't quite it, probably, found it Probably. I think Weird Al already did it with uh, his song, A Hardware Store. Oh, I don't even know that one. You've got to listen what's, to what that. Is it, what's it a spoof of? Or is I, it, I don't know. Okay. I think it's an original. Original? Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, this sounds right up Weird Al's alley here. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is one kind of... Uh, uh, interesting story that Janus played a role in kind of the, the foundation story of, of Rome mm-hmm. kind of around the um, the time of the war with the Sabines. That's correct. Right? The rape of the Sabine women. Yep. So um, we learned that after Romulus, who, you know, the founder of mm-hmm. Rome, and has been kidnapped by the, the Sabine women. Not not kidnapped by, right? Oh, sorry. sorry kidnapped the Sabine women. Yes, right. right. Um, and Rome was attacked by the Sabines at, uh, under King uh, Tatius. Janus called a, caused a volcanic hot spring to erupt resulting in the would-be attackers being buried alive in the deathly hot, brutal water and ash mixture of the rushing hot volcanic springs that killed, burned, or disfigured many of Tetius's own men. This spring is called uh, Lautoli by Varro. Later on, however, the Sabines and Romans agreed on creating a new community together. Mm-hmm. So Janus shows up as kind of an early defender of this Roman project right. by sucking them in and burning them with kind of volcanic liquid. So to bring the audience up to speed, just to make sure we're on the same page, the Romans founded their dynasty, and they had no brides, so Romulus and his men invited their neighbors, the Sabines, to uh, a games, right, a, a athletic contest, and mm-hmm. said, bring along your unmarried daughters, just because, <laughs> then stole them uh, and forced them to become their brides, right. and at this point, Janus intervenes and defends the guilty Romans yes. against the revenge of the Sabine fathers. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Right, so Janus, as a, as a god that was worshipped or invoked by the Romans, um, 
Many prayers, most prayers and ceremonies that the Romans conducted would begin with an invocation to Janus. So Janus is the god of, of, uh, of beginnings. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense. He, 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 uh, and also the, you know, the name Janus is related to the Latin word for a door, right? Correct. Yanua. Yanua. Uh, we get our word janitor from, like a door, uh, doorman. As well as uh, January, the month, right? Because right? yeah. it looks forward to the new year and it looks back to the preceding year. Right. So the Roman year uh, at one point began in March, right? And then, But then when the calendar, calendar shifted, then uh, January becomes the first month of the year as, what, as we practice now. Right. Um, so he was often invoked uh, first, and as I, as I learned, I did not know this, but um, uh, an invocation to uh, Vesta was often how they ended prayers, kind mm-hmm. of, as kind of a, a, um, um, a praise of community. Right. And kind of bringing it all back home, as it were. And so Janus was a... Um, a god that would give you access to other gods. Okay. And so even a, a prayer wasn't necessarily to Janus, you might be wanting to invoke Mars or, or Jupiter or Juno, you would begin with with Janus because he would give you, he would kind of help you cross the threshold, spiritually speaking. Got it. Yeah. And it reminds me of even, um, so even though, you know, the Greeks didn't have a god like this, I think you find that kind of that concept elsewhere. So even like in Roman Catholic imagery of, of Peter holding the keys, mm-hmm. you know, it comes from that biblical passage where Jesus says to him, you know, the, in the right. keys of heaven and hell I give to you. Matthew 16. Uh, right. But, and, but that's been translated into, you know, you know, every cartoon that you've seen of Peter at the pearly gates. Right. right? Controlling access to heaven. Right. Which, of course, is not biblical at all. Right. But the holder of the keys controlling that threshold, he plays a kind of Janus role uh, allowing you know uh, people you know who's going to get into heaven who's go- who's going to stay out right so Janus kind of plays that plays that role interesting yep so then we've we've wrapped up with Janus yeah and now we're going on to the end of the book and we're going to get the catalog of heroes that's right as the war begins in earnest and yeah. it's like a who's who right of the local military talent right so it remind, reminds me of uh, what is it book two of the Iliad correct the catalog of ships yes and so it's 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 uh, it's fan service now I find that uh, a modern audience a contemporary audience. For whatever reason, we can speculate, has very little appetite for catalog poetry. Oh, without a doubt. Have you noticed that? <laughs> yes, exactly. So, you know, the, the catalog of ships in book two, the genealogies in the scriptures, right? Yes. The Old and New Testaments. All the begats. Right. These are often skipped. And, uh, of course, I don't like to do that, especially in the context of sacred literature. But I don't like to do it in the context of uh, secular literature either. No. I like the fact that Homer is recounting soldier after soldier, and he came from here with five boats, and his grandfather was. It makes it so human. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that maybe it's just a, an aversion to repetition. This is why people don't like it. And I think it's also, it's kind of the question, okay, where's the plot? Okay. You know, I find it like with my students, too, is when we do tragedy, they, they, in, they instinctually want to skip the choruses. Mm. And uh, because this, well, this doesn't move the story along. Yeah. And what, what are they singing about? What are they talking about? Why are they bringing up this story? Right. That kind of thing. But I think you're right. Is if um, it, it, the, These kinds of things reward the careful reader. Yes. So often you'll find kind of a, a, you know, a, a gem in the middle of that. Right. Well, I was having this conversation with another individual about the Winnie the Pooh stories. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, and, How did that come up? Uh, it was about literature. Okay. Roughly speaking. And the, the individual was maintaining, these are great books, the original ones by A.A. A. Milne. Mm-hmm. And I had a similar criticism as the one you just mentioned, which is, there doesn't seem to be any plot. Right. That nothing ever happens in Thousand Acre Forest or whatever <laughs> it is. I don't know. Yeah. Nothing seems to happen. And the individual's response was... Yes, but the, the author is showing us the character of the individuals in the story, how they're so childlike and innocent. Mm. So you learn something about people. Right. And I suppose that's charming. So, yeah. so yeah, that yeah. is like what you were saying 
in terms of the catalog poetry. Mm-hmm. It's it's very humanizing. Yeah, exactly. Have you ever run across that book, the the Tao of Pooh? Yes, I've seen that. Yeah, I use that when I talk about Taoism in my, my religions class, and we address this that. Um, in the Winnie Pooh, Winnie the Pooh stories, very little happens. Right. Um, but from uh, the the uh, the author's point of view, it says, "Well, that's not the point. The point is that Pooh represents kind of this still point in the middle, kind of that that um, that perfect Taoist balance between mm. between the wild and the and the uh, the extreme uh, of Tigger and the yes. ex- the extreme of Eeyore. Exactly, on the other side. exactly right. So that that's what's important in the story, and not the, not the plot. Not by, a, I'm see I'm by your face. I'm not uh, seeing you buying it. <laughs> sounds a little bit like the uh, the job of academics is to find things that aren't there. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Right. Probably. Probably. Yeah. Is, did you grow up on the 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 story? Is the boxcar children? You no, know? but my uh, I have one child who loves them. And, but nothing happens. Well, I don't know about that. We don't talk they about make, it very they, much. They make beans over a fire. That's about <laughs> it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we don't talk about it Okay. <laughs> All right. So we have this parade of, of heroes. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, you know, this is virtual giving shout outs, right? Right. To this area. That I'm going to bring in your, your local guy. And, yeah, and so this would be, you know, at recitations and performances. This is, this is like, it reminds me of... You know, um, We've been in Vatican Square together where oh, the yeah. Pope kind of gives the address from the, the from the, his window, right? With the jumbotron. With the jumbotron. And he'll call out particular groups, right? Right. And you get one we'll side cheer, cheering, right? right? So that's that, us. That's us. The Pope mentioned us. Right. Exactly. Or, Remember or, that time he yeah. said, and you two guys from West Michigan <laughs> carting students around for bad pasta. And we cheered we and cheer- waved. We did. Exactly. That, yeah. that didn't happen. No, audience didn't. Says. No. It's like oh, it's like when the you know the rock band that you come to see they mention the name of your town right. on the stage right woo they right. they know where they are yes <laughs> here's an analog just yeah. occurs to me catalog poetry is like baseball cards how so because it's a who's who of the heroes and their exploits in a quantifiable ah. a quantifiable package yeah and there's no plot. Right. You have to make up all the plot on your own. You've oh, got yeah. to fill it in. So, I don't know, Sammy Sosa batted uh, 1,100 last year, something like that, <laughs> had 35 strikeouts and, I don't know, whatever, the um, four touchdowns. Yeah. You've got to fill in all of the narrative detail on your own because all you got is the stats. Yeah. But there are people who love encyclopedic information. That is true. Yes. And they tend to be men. Yes. <laughs> I have... <laughs> I have a good friend who knows everything about baseball. Yeah. And we never talk about baseball. It's not you. Uh, because I find it generally boring. Okay. Yeah. He's, he's very interesting in other ways, right. but he has a encyclopedic knowledge of baseball. Yeah. I find that's I, like catalog poetry. I think that that's right on, right? I know people like that too, and, and often they will gra- gravitate towards baseball because just kind of the, the the breadth of the kinds of stats. Yes, right. I think the obscure, the, the recherche. Ex- right, right, and uh, unlike almost any other sport. You're right. Yeah. But, so that's it. I think I've I think mm, I've identified it. That's what it is. Yeah. So when you come across the kid, you know, who says I can't I can't read Hesiod. I can't read Book Seven of the Aeneid with this long list of heroes. It's so repetitive. Mm-hmm. Ask them about the NBA yeah. or something that's closer to their heart. Right, 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 and right. And you'll find the same phenomenon, an endless string of very similar details. That's really, I like that a lot. Mm. That's, that's, I'm gonna, well, I've trademarked it, so. Oh, really? I was just saying I'm going to steal that and use <laughs> no, that. No, steal at will. All right, so hey, should we get to the end of this, yes. of this book? All right, let's do that. So Turnus himself shows up at the end, and he's wearing this armor that we've alluded to in this episode and the previous episode. Uh, let's let's talk about it. You want to do a little bit of Latin here? I would like to, yeah. Okay. So this is line 783 and following. Mm-hmm. Ipsin ter primos praestanti corpora Turnus, vertiter arma tenens et toto, vertica suprest, 
qui triplici crinita iu ba galealta kemairam, sustinet ait naios efflantem faucibus ignis, tam magas illa fremens et tristibus effera flamis, quam magas effuso crudescunt sanguina pugnae. Excellent. Thank you. I love these last lines here. Uh, and they're, what is it? They were crudescunt. They were caked with the poured out blood of battle. Yeah. Oh, that's great stuff. Lombardo renders that passage thusly. In the foremost ranks moved Turnus himself, incomparable sword in hand, head crowned with a plumed helmet bearing a chimera that breathes from her jaws Etnian fire, so that would be Mount Etna from right. Sicily, so locating it locally. Mm-hmm. Flames all the more fierce, the more blood is shed. On his polished shield, Io, horns uplifted, an emblem blazoned in gold, Io, covered in bristles, already a heifer, with Argus her warden and her father Inachus pouring his stream from a figured urn. Hmm. So there we have that dichotomy. Right. So are you, I, I think the argument from Stuart Smalley. Yep. And Gale. M- M. R. Gale. And Putnam. And Putnam. Putting them all together. They were all, nice. They were all, more, I think more or less on the same page about kind right. of how this kind of speaks to the duality of Turnus. Are, are you on board with that? Or, or, or do, we, do we need to kind of see how this all plays out? I'm, I'm still a little skeptical. Okay. To me, the most plausible reason why Io is depicted on his shield is just because of the ancestry. In other words, I'm not sure that Io is a symbol of victimhood. Mm. Uh, it's a symbol of Jupiter's victory, I guess, his you know sexual exploit. It's a symbol of Juno's anger. Is it meant to be a symbol of victimhood unto Turnus? This is the part I'm not convinced of. Really? Okay. Are you convinced? I am. All right. I am. I, I'm, and I think part of it just because I love stuff like this. So, for example, I, I'm currently there's a, I'm watching it's a very pulpy show on HBO Max called White Lotus. And it is, it's, um, do you need to give some kind of a, you know, audience warning here? It's not, this, this it, is not, chil- this is not for, this is not for kids and probably okay. not for most adults to tell you the truth, but one but of the, you're taking one for the I'm team. Taking, sorry. I will watch it for you. Audience. <laughs> um, but one of the things that they do very well in this, in the show is dramatic key events will often play out underneath a, a, a Renaissance painting. Oh. And um, it's not like it hits you in the face with it, but if your eye kind of moves from the, what the character's doing and you, it's clearly framed and you look at, so there was one in front of kind of the the, um, the, the death of St. Sebastian where he's tied up and covered, Correct. shot with the arrows. Yes. And um, if you think about kind of that story, oh, that's clearly commenting on what's happening in the scene and right. also perhaps foreshadowing what's going to happen to this guy. So, and I love that kind of stuff. I love that kind of thing. I do too. And so it's a, like, so you could, you could hear this poem, you could read this and you could say, oh yeah, come here. I know what that's about. I can, I can picture it and enjoy it. But it's also, you can, if you start to think about symbolically and what kind of layer it's adding to the, to the narrative, Virgil says that that's kind of a reward. Okay. All right. So I do think that the kind of IO, that, that detail that we talked about, you know, IO being, um, you know, a victim of Juno, right? And the irony of that, you know, Juno is technically on Turnus's side at this point. Mm-hmm. I think that sets up kind of a sticky moral dilemma. Okay, yeah, I'm nudged toward it. Okay, I'll say. All right, so we'll see what. what I mean, we have a lot of lot more Turnus to come uh, in future episodes, and of course, the the end of the epic is a fascinating one. Right. So we'll hang on to these images. Right. So shall we get to Camilla now? Yes. Right. At so long last. At long last, and this is how the. I think this is really striking. Is this is how the, the book ends. Right. It doesn't end with Turnus and his his uh, fancy armor. No. The last thing is, is Camilla. The most impressive and sympathetic warrior, I would say, are uh, warrior queen, warrior princess. Yeah. And uh, it's clear that Virgil has great admiration for her. Without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Can I read this bit of Lombardo yes, here? Yes, please do. Okay. So, yeah. Thanks. So here goes. Last of all rode Camilla the Volscian, leading her mounted troops and squadrons flowering in bronze. 
This princess warrior had not trained her hands to women's work, spinning and weaving, but trained to endure the hardships of war and to outrun the wind. She could sprint over a field of wheat and not even bruise the tender ears, could cruise above the open sea's waves and never wet the soles of her feet. Now, we might take that literally. Like she's, she's walking on water and she's skimming over fields. Yes. She, she's that fast. I think we're supposed to take it literally. Okay. This right. is a heroic age. It is. Things like this can happen, don't you think so? It, I, I do. I think we haven't really seen anything uh, quite like this. Supernatural? So with, with, with human, there's lots of supernatural stuff going on, right? All right. But, um, oh, but keep going. Right, okay. Uh, all the young men, and their mothers too, flocked from their houses and left their fields to watch her ride by, mouths open in wonder at how the royal purple draped her smooth shoulders, how her hair was bound in gold, and how she carried a Lycian quiver and an iron-tipped spear. Way more impressive than Turnus. Oh, yes. Way more. Right? I think it's this combination. The people have this fascination, the combination of beauty and, um, you know, the delicateness of, of Camilla mm -hmm. with the power that's on display yeah. as a warrior. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the incongruity. Yes. So Turnus is, is kind of a hulking brute, mm -hmm. right? Uh, described as tall and handsome, but there's something more compelling about someone who is not expected to be like that yes. because she's a young woman and yet has martial prowess. Agreed. Yes. It's um, it's Sigourney Weaver in Alien. He's a, uh, Rip <laughs> haven't, haven't, haven't seen, seen it. it. Okay. But it's that same kind of that, that duality, that, okay. kind of that, that paradox. So, I mean, the question I wanted to ask you is why do you think Virgil ends the book with Camilla and not with Turnus? Hmm. Is it just because, it, because it's more impressive and it kind of leaves you hanging and it's kind of like, oh, I want to know more about her? Right. It's, a, it's a, like almost a teaser, or is there something else going on? I mean, I'm not fishing for anything. I was just curious if... Well, I think she's the counterpart of the beautiful Dido in book one. Hmm. So as book one corresponds to seven, two to eight, three to nine, four to ten, etc. Okay. In book one, we are introduced to the Queen Dido moving around the city of Carthage, okay. this controlling, commanding, beautiful, towering, successful woman. Ah, Camilla is her doppelganger. I got you. That, that's that's very interesting. We got to make sure in our in the future books we got to tie it back to their corresponding parts because I think that's, that's yes, that's, that's very that's interesting. Fascinating. Yeah, and it's always interesting when you can use the word doppelganger. Oh, absolutely. I love that word. Right. German words are so funny. Yeah. All right. Um, I think we're up against it, aren't yes, we? Yes, I think so. We got to get out of here. Time to wrap it up. Who's coming in uh, to the vomitorium to use the space today? Apparently, we're being invaded by Santa's elves. Santa's elves? What are, they, what are they doing in here? They're going to set up the workshop here in the vomitorium? Some kind of some last-minute expansion? I think so. They, they need a little extra space to get things done. Okay, but they, they, they do good work, but man, they're annoying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what's this deal with the uh, elf on the shelf? What, what, uh, do people still doing that? I think so. I think right. you're doing it, in fact. <laughs> Am I do, I'm, I'm trying to come up with alternatives to elf on the shelf. Right? Okay. So um, how about... Uh, Machiavelli in the deli. All right. Yeah. I saw another one, uh, Caesar in the freezer. Caesar in the freezer is a good one. These are photoshopped images of various historical figures. Yes. I also saw Aristotle in the chip bottle, which is actually Chipotle. Oh, Chipotle? Yeah. That's lame. That is lame. Mm. So I'm, I'm actually now sorry that I said right. it. Yeah. I'm actually so, having trouble seeing the script today. You are? Yeah, because my glasses broke. Oh, no. And uh, I, I took them to the optometrist to get them fixed. Yeah, yeah. And uh, guess who I bumped into? Who? Everyone. That is brutal. That's brutal. That's brutal. We, okay, we got we got to let the audience out of here. We really got to get do. out of here. So you want to say something about Moss Method and LLPSI? I am going to do so very briefly. You want to study Greek, go from neophyte to erudite, go to mossmethod.com, makes a great present for Christmas and the holidays, buy someone the chance to learn Greek. It's uh, $325, a great value, mossmethod.com, free stuff, uh, weekly office hours, check it out. 
And if you want to study Latin, Dave? Uh, you should go to latinperdiem.com, right? Yes, slash LLPSI. That's right. And uh, check out the program I have on offer there. Fantastic. Hey, thanks always to um, Mishka, our great engineer. I'm always astonished by her, kind of her, her clean work and, and her, the quick turnaround time. Mm-hmm. It's great stuff. Thanks to the great musicians who provide the guitar and the intro and outro music. Scott Van Zen, mm-hmm. Ken Tamplin, you want to learn to sing like that, play guitar like that, they have programs available to you. Yes. Hey, if you want a shout out, if you got an idea for an episode, you got questions, you got critiques, um, drop us a line. You can uh, write to Dave, Dave at adnauseum.com. Do not forget the V. And you can send something to Jeff at adnauseum.com. That's Jeff at symbol ad nauseum. Do not forget the V in nauseum.com and let us know what you think. That's right. Dave, what are we doing next week? Next week, uh, we're going to go in a little bit of a different direction. Okay. And uh, it's going to be a surprise. Okay. So we're going to step away from the Aeneid for a bit. For a couple of episodes. Sounds That's correct. Good. And Dave, I think you have our gustatory parting shot. I do. And this comes from someone named Neil Burton. And he says, the three most powerful seasonings are hunger, variety, and gratitude. Very solemn. Yes, it is a little solemn. Yeah. But thanks for listening. Thank you. <laughs>